You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hey everyone, this is Matt, producer of the Hayek Program podcast. We've reached the end of another great year of episodes, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to and engaging with them as much as I have. The Hayek Program podcast is just one small piece of the F.A. Hayek Program, which is devoted to the promotion of teaching and research on the institutional arrangements that are suitable for the support of free and prosperous societies. If you would like to partner with us in this mission, we'd love for you to consider making a financial contribution this holiday season before the end of the year at donate.mercatus.org podcasts. That's donate.mercatus.org slash podcasts. Any donation you submit will go towards the production of the show as we bring you exciting new conversations with our scholars. Additionally, anyone who donates $75 or more or makes a monthly contribution of $5 or more will receive a copy of The Struggle for a Better World signed by Peter Betke himself. Again, the website to contribute at is donate.mercatus.org slash podcasts. Thank you so much for your support of the Hayek Program podcast. We're really looking forward to what's in store for 2022. And with that, let's listen in on today's conversation. Okay, today is uh, Friday, uh, November 19th, 2021, and I'm here with Patrick Newman. Patrick is a professor at Florida Southern College and the author of a new book on cronyism in America. Uh, It's called Cronyism, Liberty Versus Power in America, 1607 to 1849. It was just published uh, and got a ringing endorsement uh, from Rob Schneider yesterday on Twitter. Uh, So on one million viewers. So I'm very thrilled for that for Patrick. Um, And uh, anyway, Patrick, thank you very much for coming on here and, and having this conversation with me. It's a pleasure to be on, and I'm, I'm ha- very happy to talk about my book. Okay. Not just happy to see me. You just have to talk about your book. Okay. I'm, ha- I'm, ha- I'm happy to see you, too. I'm happy <laughs> to talk about my book. I'm happy to see you and to talk about my book. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Patrick, I, I, I'm being a little jovial here because Patrick is, a, is a form, one of our former graduates at GMU that we're very proud of. Um, he is uh, off to a very strong start of his career, and so I'm really excited to talk to him about his book. So, uh, Patrick, first question, uh, why cronyism? Uh, and not just because you got a grant to write a book about cronyism, which is what you talk about in your preface, but uh, because you've written several economic histories already exploring crony capitalism. And so why does a scholar who's drawn to the study of money and macroeconomics drift into political and economic history of cronyism in America? So it's a, it's a great question. The idea of cronyism, I guess I, I really have been shifting into more of the cronyism uh, over my with my research, really after working on my dissertation on uh, the macroeconomics or really Austrian business cycle theory. 
I wrote a paper on the origins of the national banking system and the bankers behind that, Jay Cook. Uh, then I wrote on the Sherman Antitrust Act, then the Federal Trade Commission. I've got a paper on meatpacking. I also edited a book by Murray Rothbard <clears throat> on the progressive era, where he explores a lot of these topics and in, in the special interest legislation and so on, as well as Conceived in Liberty, Volume 5 where he kind of looks at this, uh, the Constitution as a special interest policy. It's something that I guess really interests me because a, a big part of history that I think Austrian economists uh, have a comparative advantage in exploring is the motivations behind legislation. Traditional economic history, they look at results. So they look at what did the railroads, the transcontinental railroads do to GDP? Okay, it's an interesting question, requires a certain set of techniques. Uh, but what were the motivations behind the passage of the transcontinental railroads, the Pacific Railway Acts? That takes a different approach. That's really much more of a uh, historical or as Mises would call a thymological approach, looking at motivations, trying to see how people would benefit and so on. And you can do this for monetary history um, on the national banking system, on the Federal Reserve System, on the end of the Bretton Woods, et cetera. Uh, and you could also extend it to the overall economy, because I think very often economists focus on results of actions, which are important, but we also want to focus on motivations, uh, because we're often told that a lot of policies, monetary or fiscal or whatever, they're in the public interest or they're passed to benefit the public interest. And while that's that's a it, it, it's um, often used, right? It's advocated. Every policy, even today, is advocated to benefit the public. It's kind of a thin veneer, sort of a smokescreen for the actual reason, which is to benefit various entrenched interests, political, financial, bureaucratic, and so on. Yeah, so it's the uh, assertion of the intentional stance in social science that uh, people have purposes and plans and that all human action must be rendered back intelligible in terms of those purposes and plans. And so you're capturing that in the historical space. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think that it's it's something that doesn't get discussed because it, it's sometimes seen as well. It's automatically it's in the public interest or we right. assume that when someone serves political office um, that Murray Rothbard would always say he's like, these people have lives, right? They do something before they were yeah. in office and they do something after. So you want to actually trace what they were doing and that really the motivations behind their actions. That's a very important thing that I think um, a lot, there needs to be a lot more focus on. Yeah, I appreciate you making that point because it's a broader methodological point. You had a very nice way of putting the study of, uh, you know, results and the techniques for that. Well, to study, they give the intentional stance it's due, there's techniques and ways to do that too, which is kind of the why you're doing the kind of history traditional history in many ways, the way that you do your research. So that's great. Yeah. Um, you dedicate your book to Murray Rothbard and you use as your overarching interpretive schema, his distinction between liberty and power. Um, at some level, you know, there's an intuitive way we all understand that, but there's also a more richer way of understanding it, the way Rothbard is, is, is developing those terms. So how is it that you see Rothbard using those terms throughout his various exercises in economic history and political history and how that influences your own work uh, over time. Yeah, so I, 
I wanted to focus on early American history, particularly because I thought that there was actually a significant move in separate occasions to actually fight cronyism, a mass movement, in a sense, major political parties that not only would run for election and actually win and then pass significant legislation, something that we don't really have now when we think of people trying to reform the system. Um, and so I, I used this liberty versus power theory, which Rothbard discussed a lot and conceived in Liberty and some of his other historical writings. This really comes from um, uh, either Lord Acton, which he was very influenced by, but also contemporary Americans. This is something I mentioned in my book. If you look at the historical record, Americans, yeah. the founding fathers, um, the Jeffersonians, the Jacksonians, et cetera, all during this time period, they referred to this liberty and power and this idea of power corrupting and et cetera. This is something that Bernard Berlin and his studies of the American Revolution emphasized a lot. Gordon Wood, his uh, student also picked up on. So it's an important theme. I'm actually just trying to say that basically they're right, right? So that their interpretive framework, which they held at the time, is actually appropriate for viewing history. And so the, the, the idea of liberty versus power is that, well, you have the forces of liberty, so forces in favor either through uh, pecuniary, like some sort of monetary motivation or ideological uh, in favor of smaller government free markets, anti-cronyism, so anti-special interest legislation, you know, anti-central banking, anti-protective tariffs, anti-government debt, and so on. And then you have the forces of power, so the forces of obviously greater government control, greater cronyism, and so on. And when the forces of power are in control of government, then cronyism goes up, right? When the forces of liberty are in control of government, cronyism goes down, but only a little bit before it starts to go up again because of the corrupting nature of power. It's just the, uh, when I say power corrupts, sometimes it would have like a moral element to it. We think someone becoming a bad person. What I really try, try to explain it as is, is, is sort of a change in the economic incentives. So when you get corrupted by power, you start to realize the different economic incentives. You say, oh, well, now that I'm in office, I have to look forward to the next election. I have to broaden my support. I've got to look out for these groups, maybe give them some favors and so on. And that's something that we can see how it's an old cliche of someone. Oh, I'm going to go to Washington. I'm going to reform the system. <laughs> right. And then they sort of get stuck there and they really just kind of they, 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 they really uh, they, 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 they can't stop the swamp. They become part of it uh, and so on. And this is it's important to 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 look at now in areas or in times of American history when there isn't that significant uh, libertarian or free market force, well, then the theory matters less. If it's just total power, then you really have to look at it through the lenses of, okay, the different clashing factions of power, like the different special interest groups and so on, which would apply more to you know modern American history. But back then, I do really think it's appropriate because you did actually see people who were genuinely against cronyism and they could get a significant backing of the population. Yeah, it's um, yeah, you know the, I I um, I follow that same theme in my most recent book and several of the essays, um, and uh, one of the the punchlines that I like to say from it is that, um, you know, one perspective sees that ordinary people can do extraordinary things if just given the freedom, whereas the other view tends to see that extraordinary people can do extraordinary things if you just give them the power to do it. 
And it's that difference between giving people the elbow room to, you know, create for themselves, live for themselves, you know, have that scope of freedom versus this idea that we need to have a boss, we need to have a general, we need to have someone, you know, in charge. Um, and uh, so I want to get drilled down a little bit to specifics because I, I want to stress to the audience that uh, this book isn't just at the, you know, uh, the, the bird's eye view of the liberty versus power. You dig really deep into historical records <clears throat> and in particular this period. Uh, by the way, Patrick, I, I don't know if, if Bob Higgs ever mentioned this to you when you met him or talked to him, but when he wrote Crisis of Leviathan, he says that, that uh, Jonathan Hughes, the great economic historian yeah. um, who wrote the book A Governmental Habit, uh, told Higgs that, uh, you know, the 20th century, those are amateurs in terms of meddlesome. You should have seen how meddlesome the people were in the colonial America, you know, <laughs> what they're doing. Yeah. And so by by reading your book from, you know, 1607 up and seeing all this stuff, it, it took on a lot of the shape of what I understood used to be pushing back on Higgs about that there was a lot of this, uh, yeah. you know, efforts to get government power and whatnot to curry favor of the government to benefit themselves at the expense of others. And, and, and you detail that. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about some specifics, but let me, so you use this dichotomization, liberty versus power. You slice history into these different moments where liberty is winning out over power and then power wins out over liberty. And, you know, so for example, the revolution is pro-liberty, but the constitution is pro-power, right? And as I read your book, I see two major, in the time period that you slice, <clears throat> there's two major failed revolutions where liberty could have maybe won out. Um, maybe I'm wrong in this and too ham-fisted, but I see this story being that you had a chance with the Jeffersonians, and then that didn't happen. And then you had a chance with the Jacksonians, and then that didn't happen, right? So these two major periods. Can you elaborate and give some, like, particular examples and content from the book so that the, you know, listeners can see the kind of story that you're telling and the kind of evidence that you're bringing to bear to tell that story? Yeah. So I, I in terms of those mass movements in favor of liberty, there's really three, I guess, during this time period. One of them, the anti-federalists, they weren't really yeah, organized okay. well, uh, but it was really the, the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians. When you think of these, these, uh, these, these mass movement uh, forces that also coordinated across the country and they could win elections and so on. And <clears throat> you got Thomas Jefferson, right? And he's the, the Jefferson, you know, really the, the leader of the Jeffersonian revolution. Then you have guys like Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, uh, a little bit of John Tyler, James K. Polk. Those are the Jacksonians in the failed Jacksonian revolution. Um, <clears throat> I argue the Jacksonians got more stuff done, but it was still the same uh, failed revolution in the sense that they ended up supporting big government by the end of the period I'm, I'm looking at. And the big reason is so when you look at their elections, when they ran, so the revolution of 1800 or the election of 1800, which is called the revolution of 1800, because it was truly a revolution that it was one of the first peaceful political transfers of power between two opposing political parties in a democracy in the world, which you think that's actually like a very um, <clears throat> a, a very, a very important thing to note is that Jefferson was fighting against the all the, the, the big government trends of the Federalists uh, during this time period, the, the Bank of the United States, <clears throat> the, 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 the debt uh, assumption, 
the the drive to militarism, the quasi war, the alien sedition acts and so on. And Jefferson had this whole program that I talk about, this note of agenda. And he says, I'm going to do all these things, downsize the government and so on. Uh, in many ways, kind of side with the anti-federalists uh, or the the former anti-federalists who wanted to kind of return the Constitution to something like the Articles of Confederation. And the first term of Jefferson is actually pretty good. Uh, he repeals the Judiciary Act of 1800, so reduces federal control over the court system. He gets rid of some taxes. He gets rid of starts downsizing government spending, uh, mil- military uh, spending as well, and certain uh, certain aspects. Uh, privatizes the Bank of the United States, but the big issue is the Louisiana Purchase, and this is this massive acquisition of land that really starts to encourage a centralization of government power because this huge uh, land in a sense really corrupted. It was Napoleon wanted to sell it for a bargain amount and like $15 million. And Jefferson, he said, well, is it constitutional? Uh, and he, he sort of dropped his whole strict constructionist approach. He says, well, just do it this one time. But of course, once you do it once, you know, it's like Pandora's box. Uh, if you break the constitution, then you, you know, you've broken it forever. And this leads to Jefferson supporting further land acquisitions in the form of trying to get Canada and Florida. Uh, He starts embracing land speculation, uh, bailouts to land speculators, internal improvements to bind the country together. Um, He starts going against Great Britain, more more militaristic, uh, where by the end of his term, his second term, he has this draconian embargo act. It's like the government lockdown of the past, basically. And this really kind of means by the end of his term, the Republican Party, which Jefferson organized, was very similar to the Federalists. Right. So it was a failed revolution. The Jacksonians got more stuff done. I talk about how they had greater influence of free market thought, more radical free market thought at the time. Crucially, they also worked informally with several British reformers uh, trying to do the same thing in Great Britain, which allowed them to. Uh, lower tariffs at the same time and also pass similar hard money measures. But again, it was land that kind of did them in. And this was particularly over the annexation of the independent country of Texas after Texas seceded from Mexico, uh, which then brought up this whole issue of expanding slavery. And both of these, what, what I try and talk about in my book is that both of these revolutions really failed because the, the country got too big, Right. At various points in time, the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians, they were actually okay with independent countries. Like Thomas Jefferson was okay with having the West Coast be its own country. He wanted an empire of liberty, what he called an empire of liberty, of the you know various confederacies and states sort of informally united through a common language and a constitutional system. But he ends up supporting a, a centralized, a large, you know, a single. Uh, government, which of course leads to a centralization of power. Same thing with the uh, the Jacksonians. The original sort of manifest destiny was partially, well, just people go out in the West, they homestead it, and we'll bring it to the United States. And that just turned into, well, we don't have time for that. Let's just invade Mexico, basically, uh, which is both of those, they really floundered under the land expansion problem, which is an important issue for, for small governments. It's very hard to be a small government system when you're such a big country. Right. Um, Yeah, that's quite interesting. So let me ask you a question about this because the revolutions fail. I'm very sympathetic to that thesis 
I'm trying to think about a challenge to it. Um, so what, how do you respond to the idea that we're getting the government that we want? <laughs> or is it the case that we have strong evidence that the uh, policies diverge significantly from the sentiments of the people? So yeah. we're getting bigger and bigger government, but the people still want to view themselves as, you know, maybe more like local and not, you know, centralized. Uh, yeah. So one way is that they would define themselves by <laughs> their state rather than by the United States. Right. So yeah. during the period of time when you're talking, it still is the common parlance of these United States as opposed to the United States. That that happens after the Civil War. We become in con yes. the United States. But part of what you're talking about in this land acquisition is this growing idea of a centralized state. Is that something that was very much at odds? Or why is it that there's electoral success that combines with this growing expansion of the state power? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Are the people actually getting what they want? Um, you can see some dissatisfaction, say, in the the, Je the Jeffersonian era, uh, at least as time goes on. So part of it is a lot of these acquisitions were always done under the the uh, the, the smokescreen or the cloak of some sort of uh, national emergency. Right. Right. So the idea, oh, Britain's attacking us or there's certain uh, we're only building up our military to protect ourselves against Great Britain. The idea of impressment. In reality, you look at the evidence, Jefferson and Madison were actually trying to maneuver against Canada right. and um, it, it, like the the, the 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 American people can be misled. You know, this is something I do take from Robert Higgs. I don't explicitly mention it, but ideologies, people's, uh, you know, a set of ideas. It's really formed by elites and that kind of trickles down. So if the elites change, it's easy to change the masses like the masses yeah. are fickle. So then you have this war of 1812. Of course, this was a war that could have been totally averted, but this was just because the British, like it was just terror, you know, communication, technological issues, more or less. After the war, people sort of realize they kind of wake up and they're like, wait a second, what's going on? There was uh, several Supreme Court cases, as well as just other trends, the consolidation, the panic of 1819 that really kind of rose brought people up to, to fight this so they're like hey we don't want this this is a big part of the 1820s and the later jacksonian movement and then the expansion into the west through yeah. texas annexation enormously controversial uh that was a really controversial issue and then the mexican war was a really controversial and then in a profound sense taking all of that land from the mexican war set the stage for the civil war because it was how do we exactly handle uh, slavery in these Western territories, right? So this this was now, of course, for the Mexican War. What happened is the government was able to portray it as Mexico attacked us, even though James K. Polk put troops more or less in Mexican territory, waiting for them to attack us, right? But right. your average person, you know, once the other side fires the first shot, so to speak, they get whooped up in the war hysteria. Yeah. But this this the 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 average American person was against it in the sense that. You know, after this subsided, they kind of turned, you know, they're like, oh, they, they go back to their original uh, their original stance. But it is it is, you know, changing in the elites can change people's perceptions, which does which did happen and really exploiting a crisis is, is a classic yeah. way of of getting something done. I'll come back to this in another question. But, you know, it's, it's like, you know, one of my favorite pieces by Rothbard is 
his piece on the uh, progressives and war collectivism, you know, and, you know, so you had, you had a passing line earlier in one of your answers where you uh, pointed out that by the time we get to the 20th century, we don't really have this same sort of seismic battle between liberty and power because we're in constant power. And so it's all like waffling around power. It's machinations Mm -hmm. of power rather than the idea of true contrast between liberty and power. Um, And so that's, you know, that's one of the things that's, you know, very fascinating in your story because you're giving us this intentionality, this intentional stance. So you're capturing what it is that they are trying to do in this battle and why it is they end up by ceding liberty to power and, and how they go about doing it. So this brings me to, so one thing, uh, you know, I was, uh, you'll get a kick out of this, uh, you know, because of Zoom, uh, you know, I'm teaching online last year and I'm teaching my comparative political economy class, which you took, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm trying to get them to understand this issue about uh, the importance of history and how who tells the story is going to dictate, you know, what you take out of history. And yeah. so I played, I started the, uh, my class playing the last song from the play Hamilton, which is right all about who tells your story. And my wife didn't know I was teaching my class at the time and I'm blasting this song and she comes in, she's like, what, what the hell are you doing? You know? And I, I was trying to communicate this idea of uh, who gets to tell the story as yeah. a vital part of, you know, what's going on. And, and, you know, this is such an important aspect of, of your story. And you also focus on Hamilton yeah. in many ways. And, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, I found it interesting that you, you highlight him. Uh, that, uh, so I want you to talk a little bit about him. And then I also want to ask you the question. You refer to him as Prime Minister Hamilton yeah. uh, throughout. And, yeah. and, uh, and I kind of, you know, like the fact that you do that. So, elaborate a little bit about correcting the history on Hamilton. Yeah. So Hamilton is one of those characters that has, I think, very distorted opinion of him in that he's now like a a hero of the common man, even though he wasn't that before. A lot of it's uh, wrapped up in current sort of debates regarding various uh, like history and Hamilton's stance on certain issues. I've, I'm obviously not a fan of the play. (laughs) If you, if you read my book, you'll know I'm not, I think Hamilton uh, was 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 a crook. I think uh, at the end of the Adams administration, he was literally trying to become like a military, quasi-military dictator. He had the inspector general position, which was second to Washington, who dragged out of retirement. And even though Washington said he wouldn't actually serve unless France invaded. So you've got Hamilton uh, and he wants to invade Louisiana. He wants to invade South America and do all this stuff. He wants to have a position independent uh, uh, sort of of the president and Congress, et cetera. None of this is discussed in the play at all. And you think it's a little important to at least mention, right? Um, but yeah, I, I refer to him as Prime Minister Hamilton, really, because at least initially I refer to James Madison as Prime Minister Madison, at least in the first year of Washington's presidency. Right. Washington, I mean, he's, he's, he's George Washington. He's on our $1 bill. You know, he's, he's he's famous general and all that stuff. I know people have argued he had his own independent kind of uh, governing style while he was president, but he wasn't an experienced politician. He was obviously a general and he was chosen because the people loved him and he was charismatic and, and all of that. I mean, he really had other people kind of run the show and 
Initially, while James Madison was congressman before Hamilton became treasurer, uh, Madison was sort of shepherding a lot of key legislation that first year regarding taxing, regarding the creation of executive departments, the Bill of Rights, the judiciary, a lot of important stuff. So he was sort of a prime minister in that he was uh, sort of a quasi leader, um, so to speak. You know, you think of going back to the prime minister for the for the British um, in, in the British government. And Hamilton steals that from him, which, of course, leads to this famous Madison Hamilton split. But Hamilton is secretary of the uh, Treasury. He really is kind of the main force behind a lot of policy. He's, you know, regarding debt assumption, regarding the Bank of the United States, subsidies to manufacturers, even handling things like the Whiskey Rebellion and so on. And it's it's important to talk because I talk about because I really want to mention, you know, Washington was, I kind of treat him as somewhat secondary in these, um, in these disputes. Hamilton was the main force behind a lot of policies, the ideological inspiration. He was also really sort of seen as the, the de facto head of the Federalist Party at this time, right. and increasingly so in the 1790s. So yeah, I refer to him as Prime Minister Hamilton, uh, a little tongue in cheek, but it really kind of describes the quasi, he, he was Secretary of Treasury, um, in, in, in inspector general, but he was also something more, right? And so I use that term to kind of, a little that's something more, so to speak. So it's interesting because, you know, people who are uh, kind of very much want to see a economics for nation states, not an economics for free people, I might argue. So Leah Greenfield in her book on nationalism, is, is basically makes an argument that the U.S. had Jeffersonian rhetoric, but Hamiltonian policies. And thank God, because if we didn't have those Hamiltonian policies, we never would have become a centralized nation state with the kind of governmental capacity to do good things in the world. Right. Um, and this and, and, and in many ways, that's what Brad DeLong argues in his book, Concrete Economics. Right. That it's only because we had these Hamiltonian you know, policies, which in their argument is just following best practice of the mercantilist world, right? So, I mean, it's a kind of an interesting thing because they don't see the downside of mercantilism. They see only the upside of, you know, this sort of centralized administrative state with great capacity or whatever to be able to do this. And you're kind of, you know, you know, blowing up an aspect of that mythology in many ways, while also admitting that they're right about the history, that that's what's going on, is that Hamilton actually and Hamiltonian policies are what end up by governing what the U.S. is all about. What do you, you know? So how do you explain how, despite all the cronyism, we have the 19th century? Is it, is it because there's enough pockets of freedom that technological revolutions happen, entrepreneurial revolutions happen, or is it, you know, because you have an after this, therefore, because of this problem, right? Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. you know, so that's yeah. the, the long thing. Because we got these Hamiltonian policies, we were able to achieve X because we got great state capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, you know, people like you and I were arguing that it happened in spite of that, rather yeah. than because of that. Yeah. How, how do you make that mm-hmm. argument? 
Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. So this kind of relates, at least I'll answer this partially, it's the, the first first way, answer, answering my, <clears throat> my stance on the Constitution, because I know I've gotten into various debates with people. Um, I take the Rothbardian view of the Constitution, that Constitution is really a big government document. Um, it You look at the Constitutional Convention, you look at what the Federalists wanted, and it really was not the limited government document. A lot of small government people and libertarians sort of champion. Uh, and then people say, oh, well, the Constitution is the greatest government government system we've had in the, you know, in the world so far, at least, at least long lasting. How do you explain this? And well, the reason is so you got to imagine you, the Constitution that we love wasn't really created in 1789. It was created in, in 1798. OK, uh, after really the rise of the strict constructionist, you know, interpretation of the Constitution. So you look at what happened in the 10 years after the Constitution was created, go from 1789, 1799. You've got a debt assumption. So you've got nat national debt that's permanent. You've got uh, regressive taxes used to pay that debt. You've got protective tariffs or tariffs approaching protection also to pay that debt. You've got a Bank of the United States. Um, you've got um uh, land speculation or bailouts to, to, to land speculators. You have uh, the various stronger military. Um, you've got, we're involved in a quasi war with France. You've got the Alien and Sedition Acts, basically suppressing uh, free speech and the ability to kick out um, uh, immigrants with zero regard for the First Amendment, by the way. Uh, so you've got all of these, it's, it really is becoming this, the, moving towards this, this big government uh, monster. But then Jefferson, really, with the Kentucky resolutions um, and <clears throat> the building of his Republican Party, they really latch on this ingenious idea of strict constructionism, the anti-federalists uh, building on this. They say, well, we're just going to argue the Constitution is what we want it to be. Right. Well, what we were promised, this limited government document, we're going to put more teeth in the Tenth Amendment, saying that, well, all power is not explicitly given to the federal government. You know, they go to the states, et cetera. And this really kind of sets the stage for that limited government version of the Constitution that in many ways uh, did lead to a lot of that foundations for capitalism and so on. So interpreting the contract clause as protecting private contracts, uh, even though a big motivation for it originally was to prevent, uh, you know, to, pr to protect land speculation, you know, if a state legislature grants out favors to one corporation, they can't rescind it later on, like if a new, new people control the government, et cetera. And so this is really like a big a big reason as to why the constitution has been partially so good it's because well it was reinterpreted right and that's that's a big it's a big factor a lot of people don't realize when we try and trace oh strict constructionism back to the constitutional convention no uh well, and even in the federalist papers no they were lying uh this is more or less admitted when you look in madison we have new books that come out he doctored his notes he cooked the book so to speak but regarding like the industrial revolution later on and and, and, and so on and so forth, uh, when you when you look at really the takeoff in the uh, American sort of capitalist uh, system, uh, well, one, it didn't really happen initially in the early 1800s. Why? Because there's the whole Napoleonic War and so on. Really, our first you know big industrial spurt kind of happened in the really in the 1840s in certain ways. In the 1850s, the Civil War did not speed up industrialization. It slowed it down. And why was that? Well, I think the Jacksonian policies had a lot to do with it, particularly at least uh, the constitutional conventions at the state level. 
reforming mm-hmm. the state governments, and in particular, getting rid uh, in many ways of the chartering system for companies. So you have general incorporation statutes, not the chartering system where you basically have to appeal to the legislature to get to be able to use the corporate form for a certain you know business activity. So there were these pockets, as you mentioned, that really did lead towards a lot of growth and also um, you know, you think of the, 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 the Jacksonian, the independent treasury that lasted for many years, even though there was the national banking system, there was still, um, this uh, animosity towards a, towards a central bank. Uh, you did see free trade or quasi free trade in the 1840s and 1850s. Um, and then there was again, this general incorporation movement, et cetera, that I do think really led to a lot of growth later on, although I don't explicitly try and um, you know, measure this and explain it, but it's a mixed bag. So it's not, yeah, the, it was really in spite of it. Like you said, it was in spite of the mercantilist policies, uh, you did see growth, right? And this is because in spite of it, there was other factors occurring, or we were actually able to repeal several policies or bring them sort of to more closer to free market. I mean, there's that, there's that liberty and power uh, right. d- distinction. Yeah. That battle. Yeah, I think also the fact is, is that creating of a common market in, in, in a large country ends up by being like a free trade zone in many ways. And especially, mm-hmm. you know, and so then efforts to move against that, you know, idea of that independence of the states, but also the idea of the common market, you know, uh, is part of this whole story. Mm-hmm. So centralization is a, is a major, you know, it's a bane to development, right? Rather than the cause of development in the story. And Randolph Bourne, uh, you know, early 20th century, you know, thinker said that war is the health of the state. Um, In your narrative, militarism is constantly rearing its ugly head. As you've mentioned in our conversation here, these various different disputes, right? And so can you, like, is, in your mind, what is the relationship that you see between ideas, militarism, you know, and laissez-faire principles or the disregard for laissez-faire principles? Like, mm-hmm. you know, we must suppress decentralization because we have to fight this emergency or something. And mm-hmm. how does that play in your battle between liberty and power throughout the period that you're talking about here? Yeah, so I, there, there is a relationship. I mean, whenever we're talking about people with free market ideas, uh, you know, the, the, during this time period, we have to realize that this was a relatively new doctrine. It was sort of imperfect. They all granted various exceptions. Uh, one person who I do talk favorably about in the book, or at least his influence on American thinkers uh, was Adam Smith, right? His the, the Wealth of Nations, Jefferson loved the book. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jefferson loved the book and he was, you know, small, small government. Um, protectionists and promoters of the American system constantly criticized their opponents as sort of these uh, Adam Smith acolytes and so on. He had a very big influence, right? But even Adam Smith would grant certain exceptions to free trade, like in the name of national defense, right? And this isn't, you know, he's not the laissez-faire, you know, the pure 100% advocate, right? That obviously takes time to get there and not not saying other people at that time did do that, but that does those exceptions do play a role because there actually are people who say, 
well, I supported uh, the embargo act or other restrictions because Adam Smith said in certain conditions, you know, we, we could do that. So it was the Smith escape hatch of, you know, 200 years ago. Um, so he, someone who him who had such an important influence on the Americans, right, he would have various exceptions. And likewise, various Americans at the time would say, well, uh, you know, we got to support decentralization unless, right, you know, we're attacked or there's something like that. Then, you know, we can dip our hand in the cookie jar for a little bit, so to speak, and do all this stuff. But of course, once you do that, then the cat's out of the bag. Um, and yeah, this 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 presence of, of of militarism or really just the the desire to expand uh, the country. Yeah, a lot of people, when we look at American history now, we just see we see it as sort of preordained that. It was a given the United States would move from the original 13 states on the East Coast to its present. We would just go all the way west, right? We view this now. Well, it's only natural we'd have to do this. And we'd also pick up Alaska and Hawaii too. You know, why not? Um, but you know, there were a lot of people at the time who said that, well, you might have you might have separate countries, right? You could have separate Texas, you could have separate West Coast, you might even have, you know, a Southern Confederacy, a Mid-Atlantic Confederacy, a New England Confederacy, the Mississippi River before you had it tra internal trans you know, internal improvements from the West to the East. A lot of people said, well, you just have, you know, uh, Kentucky and Tennessee and the Midwest. They would form their own Confederacy and, and you know, Confederation and so on. And, and but it's the it's the desire to have more land and it's the desire to. Uh, well, in order to get more land then we have to fight our, our enemies and so on, this this really led to a, a disregard for laissez-faire principles because it's hard to have a small government when you're constantly expanding the size, the actual landmass of the country. It's, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. Um, so there's this constant push towards uh, re a, a reinforcing equilibrium of centralization and expansion, centralization and expansion. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah. So, all right. So, Patrick, this is uh, fantastic. Uh, highly recommend everyone get a hold of cronyism. Liberty versus power in America, 1607 to 1849. Um, so that's done. That project's done. What are you currently working on uh, now that you're most jazzed up about? So <clears throat> I'd always like to potentially continue the story if there's enough demand on, on the, you know, for, for, for later periods. I would use a different sort of theory than liberty versus power, but the basic element of cronyism would be there. In terms of what I'm working on right now as an immediately – uh, recently, I actually just finished a rough draft with Joe Salerno on the evolution of Rothbard's uh, Rothbard as an economist in the 1950s and 1960s in his writing of Man, Economy and State. So looking at the archives, how Man, Economy and State developed, how it moved from a textbook to a treatise, as well as what Rothbard was doing after he finished the book say in 1956, when he really got the rough draft done, he was working on America's Great Depression. He was reviewing various things, the Volcker Fund, trying to engage um, you know, the most recent writings and so on. And then we sort of end the book really with the publication of Man, Economy and State and uh, some of the unfortunate institutional battles he faced with like the Volcker Fund collapsing and all of that. Right. So going to his evolution as an economist from sort of refining the Misesian system to trying adding in his own theories and so on. And, and yeah, so that's our project. It's about, I want to say the, the, the rough drafts about 180 pages, you know, we got to edit it, maybe cut it down, et cetera. Uh, that's something that we're hoping will come out like in early 2023. Right. So, so that's, that's a, that's a book. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's a book. Right. Yeah. So it's like a, it's, it's a separate separate book uh, project. Um, there's also the, the cronyism. Uh, I'm working on a paper, uh, my, my longstanding paper on the meatpacking industry. Hopefully we'll see some some, re, you know, resolution We're working on that. So another kind of instance of cronyism and so on into uh, the various uh, significant government legislation, the 1906 Meat Inspection Act. And yeah, so I've got I've got those those main projects. I'd like to see where, where they go. I'd like to, yeah. again, continue the study of special interest, you know, privileges and 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 so on. And uh, God willing, carry to the present day. Uh, you know, any return to, to any return to monetary theory and and, and yeah. policy and history? Yeah, I, I'd like to do that. Um, I'm I, I'd, I'd like to return. You know, it really depends on what happened, what happens here regarding, you know, in the 2020s. Um, someone asked me it's sort of in the works to write like a little hundred page thing on like the history of money and banking uh, and how we got here. I'm, I think there'll be something I got to figure out later next year um, or, or early next year about. But, yeah, that's something I'd like to like to return to. Uh, going back to monetary policy, et cetera. It, with any luck, um, if there's some sort of downturn, business monetary induced downturn in the early 20s, I got a great project. I already got my paper on the depression of 1920 to 21. <laughs> I can compare it with the depression of 2022 to 2023. I don't know, something yeah. like that. So I've yeah. got that planned. You know, that's that's just waiting for the 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 the, the empirical facts to crystallize. I guess so. Yeah. So I've got a lot of projects, history related. Yeah, no, you're you're very busy research wise. You're also now starting to do a lot more of, uh, you know, lecture circuit and and things like that. When you're out there, are you optimistic about the future of, you know, these kind of ideas that you care passionately about in terms of getting greater traction? Or do you find them having more difficulty resonating with the new generation of kids that have grown up in a world where, you know, they've experienced nothing but the military, you know, a permanent war economy and cronyism and uh, now a pandemic, all of which somehow are interpreted in the mainstream of our culture as demanding more centralization rather than less. Yeah. Are you optimistic or, or do you, what challenge do you see as someone who now is, giving a lot of talks all over the place and meeting a lot of young people. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, it's something I, I, I enjoy. I uh, enjoy when people are interested in my talks. I was like, Oh wow. I, I'm, I'm, I'm someone, someone read a book or read a paper. I was like, Oh, okay. That makes two of us now. There's more people inter- interested in the, in, in the ideas. Um, I think on one hand, you do see some notable discontent among people, right? They realize that, hey, uh, you know, certain so the system isn't working. OK, so there is that dissatisfaction with government control related to lockdowns or just um, just other aspects of, 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 of their lives. A lot more people have become susceptible, you know, susceptible to these ideas because a lot of policies has really hit the gut level. You know, national debt, banking legislation, yeah, it's kind of hard to get people interested. But if you're talking about lockdowns or face masks and vaccine mandates, you know, requirements by the government, there's really, or education, school closures, you know, this really is something that 
you know, it's the gut level, right? And that's what guys like Rothbard, et cetera, they spoke about why people were so interested in silver and tariffs and stuff back in the 1800s because politicians, they tied it to prohibition, alcohol, uh, parochial schools, immigration, you know, again, things that are easier to understand more of the cultural level. At the same time, I think there's increasing challenges. Uh, the pandemic has definitely caused, I think, an education gap, which is unfortunate, right? This isn't, this is just, you know, it's hard to learn remotely. It's hard to learn with all of this, uh, this, this chaos going on. Um, obviously, technology has played a big role in certain things. Uh, I think certain aspects, you know, uh, either, you know, re regarding various institutions, universities, or, or donors, et cetera, there are certain uh, uh, things that are problematic. Uh, I, I could discuss more in a different setting. Um, but, you know, really all you got to do is just keep on working within the settings that you have and never give up. And, you know, one more time with feeling. Right. <laughs> so uh, you, you, know, you just got to keep going, keep on trying to apply uh, or, or explain your ideas in the in the, you know, given the constraints you faced and, and you, know, you face and so on. I think it's optimistic. I think I'm optimistic that you can get a, a group of more people interested in something. I don't know if we're at, uh, at a majority yet or a size large enough to actually start to influence policy or just uh, the way ideas are taught and so on. You need to see more. But, you know, this is something that Rothbard discussed a lot. In order to really have ideas or movement gain traction, you need two things. You need the subjective conditions. You need the objective conditions. So you need the subjective conditions. You need See, so would say the hardcore cadre, right? You, you need the group of people who are really uh, interested in the ideas and willing to explain them and so on. The objective conditions are just the economic, political, cultural sort of circumstances that are really going to get when people say, OK, the system isn't working. Right. So that's going to cause people to switch. You know, you think about what caused so many people to get interested in the ideas in the financial crisis or around 2008 because the financial crisis failed war in you know, Iraq, housing bubble, all of this stuff, right? And now more people could be interested in ideas if, you know, there's continued economic difficulty with inflation or, or whatever. You don't want to, you know, jump, jump on the current events bandwagon, so to speak, but there, that is something that's necessary for ideas to get traction, you know? Yeah. So it really just depends if, if people can sort of tie the relationship between the ideas and the world they live in, then you're going to get more people interested uh, in a particular perspective. All right. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. This has been a very uh, enlightening conversation. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, it's, uh, I'm really happy for all the success you're having and wish you to have continued success. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And it's um, really honored to be on here. And so hopefully I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.